Father, following the instructions that we have received already in Psalm 107, in which we will explore at further depth, we the redeemed gathered in this place confess that you have saved us, that we are the trophies of your grace, that we stand here redeemed because the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilt on Calvary that satisfied the debt that our sin deserved. We have learned from Scripture, we have heard from your holy, unequivocal, infallible word that the wages of sin is death. We confess that we were wicked, transgressors, each and every one, without hope and without God in the world, deserving of capital punishment on account of crimes against the divine, crimes against God himself. But we confess that Jesus Christ paid our debt. He was killed so we would not have to suffer in hell for our sins. He was risen again as proof positive of victory over death, hell, sin, the grave, and the enemy's schemes that once beguiled us and kept us in bondage of sin and slavery. We, Lord Jesus, have seen the shackles fall from our wrists. We have seen the bondage of Satan loosed by the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have experienced that sigh of freedom and release as he paid for our sins in our place. And now we rejoice that he is our redeemer. He has purchased us. And now we pray that we would exalt him, glorify him, and draw attention to his greatness and his power and his majesty and his saving work. Lord, I pray that the proclamation of your scripture would equip us to do exactly this, through a clearer understanding of the gospel and a more bold proclamation to a world lost and dying in their transgressions and sins. I pray that you would reinforce your church, Lord, to stand strong against views to the contrary, to promote and to proclaim the one way of salvation, Jesus Christ, Christ alone, him crucified and raised as our eternal hope and the hope for anyone who would seek to be freed from the clutches of this fallen world, including and especially their own sin. As we turn to your scriptures now, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that your spirit would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the holiness, the beauty, the truth, and the revelation of Christ our Lord in all the pages of scripture, and especially in Psalm 107 as we study it. And as you do so, may you be glorified in your church, and may the lost be called to repentance and faith. We pray all of this in the matchless name, the holy name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege it is to join together to worship our great Lord and Savior and also to open His holy word and consider it together. As you turn in your book, in your Bible, to uh, Psalm 107, I would just introduce this message this way. We'll cover the first 16 verses, Lord willing, this morning, of a 43-verse chapter, reminding you that the second sermon, or sermon of the month, second Sunday of the month, is our Psalm of Month series. By God's grace, we're coming up on nine years of preaching the Psalms. And I hope you can say with me, however long you've been on that journey, that it has been fruitful. To rest our souls assured in the sovereignty of God, the glory He deserves, and to hear time and again the calls to worship, hear time and again the glories expounded of the Lord in the pages of the Psalter, is necessary and encouraging to reinforce our souls, especially in times like these. And so to the Psalms we turn again, Psalm 107, 1 through 16, while you're finding your place there, let me give you an aim for this message. The goal of this morning's sermon is to proclaim true redemption and call the redeemed to worship. To proclaim true redemption and to call the redeemed to worship. 
Under point number one, we'll have some explanation of that word redeem, redemption, redeemer. What does that mean? We'll cover that and more applications as well. The title of this morning's message is Redeemed Confession. There is a statement, a conviction of truth that the redeemed declare. Thus, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say what? Say that they have been saved by their Redeemer. And so they testify in their experience and with their words to the power of the gospel that has transformed their life. These are some of the themes of Psalm 107 and will shape, Lord willing, our message this morning. Would you stand out of reverence for God's holy word today as you're able? And hear now the proclaimed word of the Lord as it comes to us in our hearing from book 5 of the Psalter, beginning in Psalm 107, verse 1 through verse 16. Here is the holy word of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Verse 4, some wandered in desert places, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things, verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor, and they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We've noted that in your scriptures, this may be the case above Psalm 107. You might have this heading, book five. The book of Psalms is divided into five separate books, and many scholars think it mirrors the Pentateuch. The division of five is important in Scripture. Five mean, or Pentateuch means five books, in fact. And the first five books written by Moses in the Bible, what are they, kids? Kids, can anyone tell me what the first five books of the Bible are? Number one book in the Bible, first one? Genesis, then we have? Shout it out, then we have? And then fourth is Leviticus. Fifth is, or I'm sorry, fourth is Numbers. Fifth is? Uh, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Very good, kids. So that is a five-fold division of the Pentateuch, five books, those works of Moses. In a similar way, the Psalms are divided into five books as well. And so this is the first Psalm of Book 5, Psalm 107, that we encounter today in our study. Book 5 of the Psalter, or the collection of Psalms in Scripture, opens with four modifiers. A thematic, a poetic, a symmetrical, and contextual psalm. So Psalm 107 is thematic, it's poetic, it's symmetrical, and it's contextual. The theme of this praiseworthy testimony, or the theme is the praiseworthy testimony of the steadfast love of Yahweh, which is that high and holy revered name for the Lord, which appears in your scripture translated as L-O-R-D in all capital letters, if your translation is similar to mine. 
So the redeeming love of Yahweh, or the uh, steadfast love of Yahweh, redeeming his people, is a theme worthy of the praise of his own. That is a major theme, if not the major theme of Psalm 107. Now let's, second modifier, poetry. The poetry incorporated in Psalm 107 pictures redemption from four perilous situations. The psalmist calls them trouble. Some wandered in desert places, verse 4. So that's the first illustration of trouble. Imagine yourself lost in a desert. We'll cover that one this morning. Second one we'll also cover is uh, described in verse 2 as some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons. Second illustration of trouble is enslaved prisoners. So we have desert fugitives, enslaved prisoners. Third, demonstra- or third illustration of trouble, verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways. Because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. It goes on to describe a certain sickness. You could say they were invalids, if you will, afflicted invalids, people who were uh, handicapped through and non-functional due to sickness. And then number four, picture of trouble, shipwrecked castaways. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters, or you could say perhaps storm-tossed sailors. So these are four pictures of peril in the uh, beauty and the poetry of Psalm 107 that communicate to us the distress that we're in that puts us in need of a Redeemer. So the poetry of Psalm 107 incorporates four pictures of redemption from four perilous situations, dangerous situations, which vividly illustrate the saving work of God and they're followed, this is symmetry now, by a four-part pattern which is evident in each picture of distress. So it's a thematic psalm, said festival of the Lord. It's a poetic psalm. It illustrates four ways, the danger that we are in before God saves us. And it's a symmetrical psalm. There's a repeated pattern in each one of these four accounts. And the pattern goes like this. First, there's a description of the trouble. I just read you four of them in brief. Secondly, there is a cry of the people. So verses 6, 13, 19, and 28 all have this uh, same phraseology. Verse 6, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Then uh, jump down to verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. It's almost like a chorus or a refrain. There's a symmetry here. There's a pattern. So we have a description of the trouble. We have the cry of the people. And that is immediately followed by the deliverance or the salvation of the Lord. Verse 6 follows with, And he delivered them from their distress. Amen. And then verse 13, And he delivered them from their distress. And then that's followed by the example or the way he delivered them, the application in each case. So again, the pattern. Description of trouble. And then followed by a cry of the people. Followed by the Lord's deliverance. And then the last portion in that kind of fourfold pattern is the people's thankful praise. And this is preceded by the words, let them, repeated four times. Verse 8, so therefore, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, the people's thankful praise. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love again. And you'll find that four times in the psalm. So just an overview of the beauty and the structure. So thematic, poetic, symmetrical, and then also a contextual psalm, which means it's given in a context of certain events. Psalm 107 follows 106, In the book, by arrangement and theme, Psalm 106 prays thus, 106.47, a cry. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. And what does Psalm 107 follow with? Verse 3, he has redeemed us, verse 2, from trouble and gathered us in from the lands, from the east, the west, the north, and the south. 
Psalm 106, 47 gives a cry for salvation in exile. And then Psalm 107 gives a fulfillment and promises that in fact, God will and has gathered the people from the far corners, if you will, of the earth. So that's a context of exile. Psalm 107 provides a worship anthem, a call to worship upon fulfillment of the prayer of Psalm 106 during times of exile. While each scenario, those pictures of distress that I gave you, in Psalm 107, while it contains familiar allusions or references that we can see in Scripture to demonstrate or to illustrate a greater and enduring reality, it is not a historical psalm per se. It differs a little bit in this sense, that these examples of peril are given to illustrate a greater theme, that without God we are in distress, chiefly because of our sin, but when we cry out to God in redemption or for redemption through repentance and faith, salvation is forthcoming. And then through this act, God redeems a people to the praise of his glory. So the experience of Israel in deliverance through the wilderness, Psalm 107 teaches us is to picture the experience of your and my deliverance from sin unto the praise of his great name, unto the promise of a promised land in glory. Amen. So this is the basic structure and themes that Psalm 107 gives us. Psalm 107, historical allusions and references serve to demonstrate the greater need, indeed a universal need for salvation. It's not just the people of old that needed salvation when they were in distress, but every sinner in Adam needs salvation. This is true in every era since the fall. And then divine intervention by the Lord becomes the theme of salvation in this great hymn. And it's a hymn for every generation of believers, not just those who are in exile of old, but those who are in exile in every generation due to their sin. We have encountered sisters, brothers in Christ in the hearing of this message. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you have been born again, we have encountered the saving power and the steadfast love of the Lord, redeeming us from the perils an eternal death grip, namely, chiefly, the chokehold of our sin. So Psalm 107, we can certainly relate to as believers, and we can certainly use to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Let us begin with a heading under which we'll organize our thoughts. Psalm 107 calls to worship those who are one time, and then I have four major references, desert fugitives, enslaved prisoners, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover two more. I've listed these in brief already. Afflicted invalids and then shipwrecked castaways. So Psalm 107 calls to worship. It calls us to worship. It says, praise the Lord, because reminding us that we were one time desert fugitives. We were like people lost in the desert with no hope of an oasis, but only starvation on the horizon. Just days, just minutes, just the last drop of water in our canteen from certain death. And God saved us. And then Psalm 107 calls us to worship, reminding us that we were also like those who were enslaved prisoners, that we were in bondage between, uh, behind bars of iron and behind doors of bronze, and there was no hope of escape. Yet somehow, miraculously, God freed us by His sovereign power. Therefore, we ought to praise Him. That's basically the structure of Psalm 107 in these four examples. Psalm 107 calls us to worship. Well, it calls us to worship who were one-time desert fugitives and enslaved prisoners. Before we get to those two examples in depth, though, let us consider this preface, the notion, the idea of a call to worship. We opened our service with a call to worship. Psalm 107 opens with a call as well. So just to remind you, verse 1. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. There's a call to offer praise to the Lord. Give thanks to Him. Why? Because of His character and nature, simply described as goodness. Because the Lord is perfect in the substance of His being. Because all His attributes constitute His perfections. Because He is holy. And because He is high. And because He is absolutely inexhaustible in His beauties and His glory and His power. Therefore, we ought to praise Him. And as it touches us, we have experienced His goodness in this way, Psalm 107b, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is the occasion for worship. The occasion for worship, every time we gather in this place, just like the call to worship went out at the time when this psalm was written, that people would gather at the tabernacle courtyard and so forth, the occasion was the same. One more day that God has endured with this wicked world, one more day that He has extended to us grace so we do not deserve it, proves to us yet, with one more 24-hour uh, period, time period on the record, that God is steadfast and loving, and He endures, and His patience is superior, powerful, it's amazing. And indeed, in His plan for redemption, it lasts forever. His enduring love has no shelf life for those who have the promise of eternal life secured through the sacrifice provided. The steadfast love of the Lord. When are we moved to give thanks? You know, um, illustration for you. My wife told me of a story. I haven't read the account firsthand. But apparently it went something like this. And this is just a story in the last week or so due to fires on the West Coast. There was a group of 200 or so people that I heard of who were surrounded by fires. And Cal Fire, California Fire, the, federal, or the state agency that it organizes to rescue and so forth and to intervene in these circumstances deemed that it was too unsafe for them to fly in, to rappel down, to send their helicopters to rescue these 200 people. So they just said, we have to cut our losses. We simply won't rescue them. Well, thank God there was other agencies that were equipped to do this kind of thing that decided to take the chance. And so some branch of the armed forces, you know, whether it was California National Guard or something like that, I suspect, they went in, sent their helicopter crews, they safely landed and loaded and evacuated all 200 people. We're surrounded by fire. Now, imagine that you were among them. What if you had been safely loaded up into a helicopter, brought to a safety, and then you land? And you know, you can imagine that trip, the fires are all around as that um, aircraft lifts up into the air, you see these, this hellish circle of flames that you have been delivered from. And finally, the smoke clears, you land, you collect your thoughts, and you get a little bit of the context in the story. Come to find out, Cal Fire was going to leave you there to survive on your own devices. Knowing full well you would have burned, been burned alive, what would you say to the pilot that ushered you to safety? Would you not offer to him spontaneously in that moment a tear-felt thank you? Thank you for sacrificing, for risking your life. And I was told, too, that the, they were counseled against this. Cal Fire said, we beg you, do not do this. Not worth the risk. But against counsel otherwise, there was a great risk that was taken by this agency that went in and saved these people. And imagine yourself in those shoes and the kind of thankfulness that would be owed your pilot who risked life and limb to go into this fiery inferno and rescue you from that blaze. Well, that illustration hopefully hits a little closer to home. Now I want you to think about the spiritual reality of your own soul. Jesus Christ came and endured the flames of hell, as it were, better stated, more precisely, the judgment of God on Calvary to save you from hellish destruction. 
He was the special forces, if you will, to follow that analogy through, who came in and offered the only sacrificial act that could redeem you, pull you out of certain destruction in the flames of hell itself. And so as he lifts you in salvation, as you repent and believe, and as you're ushered by his grace onto safe ground, the Bible calls it the rock and foundation of your faith, Jesus Christ, and you stand upon him, and the dust settles, and you think about what happened, how ought you respond? Well, that, the answer to that question is a call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. When I was surrounded by the flames of hell, the only one equipped to save me gave his life in my place. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This is not salvation to live, to see another day, to hopefully live another 40 years, only to certainly die because all men are mortal in the Cal Fire story. No, this salvation is eternal. The flames of hell would destroy you eternally and the salvation of Jesus Christ is eternal promise of glory one day. Thus the, thus the application, how much more? We can relate to the idea of being saved from the fires that are around us, and tangibly so, but we need to extend that and ask this question, how much more is the Lord worthy of our thankful praise when we consider his steadfast love? Second major point under this call to worship, uh, verse 2, now it makes sense. It really is emphasized more clearly when we consider the work of God on our behalf, considering our distress, as the psalmist would say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Who are the redeemed and what is redemption? Well, redemption is the purchase price. Redemption price is what is necessary to pay to restore to a former condition. One definition of redeemed is to put back what was lost, broken, stolen, or destroyed. It's to restore something to its former condition. A redeemer is one who steps in to actually do that. In the Old Testament, there was a concept called a kinsman redeemer. And it was a person of wealthy means who could actually step in and to buy somebody out of their debt obligation or slavery. And that individual had a relational connection to whoever was in bondage. And if they exercised that right as a kinsman redeemer, they would pay the necessary price to restore to the former condition that which had been stolen, abducted, lost, broken, or lost in slavery and so forth. That would be a redeemer. There's also the term redeemer is used in the Old Testament to describe one who satisfies the terms of justice. If murder, unprosecuted murder takes place in a land, consider abortion in our day, to the tune of uh, uh, tens and tens of thousands of innocent lives slaughtered, there is unprosecuted murder that has taken place within the boundaries of our land. The Bible says in the Old Covenant that this racks up a certain debt and a certain uh, record of, it, of guilt against that nation called blood guiltiness or blood pollution. Now, in order to mitigate this, a redeemer must step in and must satisfy the terms of justice. And who is equipped to do so? Well, in the old covenant picture, someone who would avenge the death as a delegated agent of God's vengeance, his wrath, to intervene, to prosecute with capital punishment when a murder took place, would restore once again. He, would rede- he was called a redeemer because he would cleanse the land from blood, blood guilt and he would set the situation in that society aright once again. And now they didn't live under the threat of God's justice like a guillotine knife strung over the heads of the neck of society. Well, we are in a place in our day in desperate need of this kind of redeemer. And I tell you, 
Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the conditions of the ultimate Redeemer. This is why Jesus is called a Redeemer. He intervenes. He's the only one who has a, he, he's the only one who has a treasure precious enough to buy our souls. And that treasure is his own blood. He is our kinsman redeemer in this regard and gives his own blood to buy us back from slavery to the devil and our sin. And he is the only one who can set the terms of justice aright again. There's a great human cry that we hear in the streets of our land that justice would return. There's this visceral cry, and we'll talk more about that in the course of this sermon, arising from the throats and the hearts of individuals. And I'm convinced that when you hear, when the, uh, all of this unrest fills up our news feeds and so forth, and you hear these cries from the inner cities, what you are hearing is the visceral groan of blood guilt in America. But the problem is, because the church has not, or the voice of the church has not been listened to, or perhaps it has not been precise enough, people don't know where their Redeemer is. So who do they cry to for redemption? Well, anything short of Jesus Christ will not suffice to redeem the blood guilt of this culture and intervene. We must cry out for the mercy that can only be offered by Jesus Christ. And when we do, both on an individual level in our own sins and on a blood guilt level and, uh, with respect to a nation, we can move from the state of angst and anguish in our distress to a state of giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He has endured with us. His steadfast love endures forever. And we, the redeemed, say so because our Redeemer has intervened on our behalf. He has satisfied the terms of justice by dying in our place. Do we acknowledge that it is the death of Jesus Christ alone that can heal all rifts that are caused by sin? Or do we look to another Redeemer? Psalm 107 directs our attention to Christ and Christ alone. Third point under a call to worship. This is a widespread event that is proclaimed in Psalm 107. Verse 3, notice, and gathered in. The Lord has redeemed his own from trouble. Verse 2, in summary. And then verse 3, and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. So the redemption of the Lord, this call to worship is a widespread call. Psalm 107 anticipates that this call to worship the one true God will go way beyond just the geographical borders of Israel and will go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Kids, you ready for a pop quiz? Yeah. All right, tell me what's the legacy of Japheth? Legacy of Japheth. So let's go through it, right? Shem and the significant sons. That's correct. It's a ham and the city builders, and Japheth and the coastlands. That's right. So the kids have just remembered that there are three children that represent three legacies in Noah's family. Uh, Seth was the significant son. Through him, the Redeemer would come, ultimately Jesus Christ. Ham represented the antithesis, or the work of uh, Satan, as it were, the legacy of sin, and placing hope in the city of man and not the city of God. And then Japheth represented the legacy of the coastlands, the distant regions. And thus, uh, the, the coastlands are referenced in Scripture poetically to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. There was this hope of the wide-scale reach of the Redeemer all the way back to the days of Noah. One day, the tents of Japheth would dwell reconciled under the tents of Shem. That is to say, the distant coastlands would find a Redeemer proclaimed to them as the gospel went to redeem for Christ a people from every tribe, and tongue and nation. And you can look in the mirror tonight when you get home and you have proof that that has happened if you are a believer. Because you, and as far as, in as much as you live in Cross Lake, Minnesota, live in a distant land from the geographical epicenter of God's redemptive work at the time when Psalm 107 was written. 
Nevertheless, its words are true, and you are living proof. After all, you have been gathered in from Cross Lake, Minnesota, or wherever you live in this area. You've been gathered in from the lands, even from the east, the west. And we, we identify with the north, don't we? From the north and from the south. So this is the context of the call to worship. This is the preface and heading. Psalm 107 calls us to worship in this way, recognizing that we owe worship because we have been loved steadfastly and forever through our Redeemer who has paid the price to buy us, and this call goes forth to all nations, yes, even to us. Now, second major point, Psalm 107 calls to worship those who were one time desert fugitives. Who were we? What, was the, what is a good description or analogy of our distress in our sin? Or our distress is a wicked nation. We could make that application too. Verse 4 picks up with a picture. Some wandered in desert places, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. I wonder if anyone has felt this way. You know, so many of you, myself included, we've commiserated, have we not? If you just listen to the news and don't ground yourself in Scripture, if you just take the pulse of culture... If you just, you know, read the major headlines or the things that come to the fore and the boiling cauldron of tensions, uncertainty, and sin that we happen to live in in the West right now, does it not cause your soul to faint? Oh, I mean, it's so discouraging, is it not? It feels like you're wandering in a desert place, does it not? It feels like there's a wilderness and hope, the oasis of hope, you can't see it. And every uh, redeemer that is proffered by the world's systems ends up being a mirage. It's like a, a, a faded, deceptive deal. And then the closer you get to it, the more elusive it gets. And finally, you realize it was nothing more than the human mist on the distance or the sun rays playing off the sand of the wilderness of this godless world that we live in. We are wandering in desert places as a nation. But more importantly, as an individual, we were wandering in desert places. Now, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the day before, my kids were watching uh, Man vs. Wild. And okay, full disclosure, I was watching too. I, I must admit, it kind of drew me in. I didn't know this show was as intense as it was. And, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with all the tricks and stuff like that. I was a little skeptical watching it, but I'm pretty sure he ate a lot of bugs. And just that alone uh, was pretty heroic in my estimation. I can't imagine stomaching a bunch of cicadas just to get through a day in the wilderness. So anyway, Bear Grylls is out. He's dropped off. And if you know the premise of the show, he's going to basically demonstrate how you survive several days until you get back to civilization. So sure enough, they drop him off in the Sahara. He goes through these different adventures. He climbs down a well. He digs in the mud. All he finds is a beetle. He puts it in his mouth. Uh, it doesn't taste the way he expected. When in doubt, spit it out. Seems like a good rule. Climbs back out of the well, still no water, and continues on his journey. Well, nightfall finds him. He's created this bed above the ground. He's built a fire, and lo and behold, he's going to survive one more day. Why? How will Barry Grills get through? Well, this fire is attracting cicadas and locusts and beetles. And so carefully, you know, before night, before he turns in for the evening, he collects these bugs and put them in a jar. So, you know, the sun rises and, you know, breakfast bell is announced in his own head. He jumps down from bed and, set, and begins to make himself a insect patty, right? So he squishes up all those bugs into a ball. Then we watch him try to keep those things down. And he either threw up and the camera didn't show it or he kept them down somehow. Anyways, Bear Grylls continues to his day. And at the end of that third day in the wilderness, he finds a road. And there's a truck. He runs up to the truck, jumps on the bumper, and now he's safe. Why? Because he has found civilization. Well, that's a little picture of what it's like to wander in the desert wastes. You know, it's hard in our opulent society where you can't drive 10 minutes without a gas station to realize what it's, to be, what it's like to be really deprived. 
Have any of us wandered in a desert not knowing if we were, you know, if we kept walking that we wouldn't have enough steps literally in our system to get us to the next, next source of water? And then to dry, try to reach deep into the mental reserves and to try to just feed, uh, at last resort, a little bit of protein by a few insects just to get a little bit further. And then to fight that fear that would overcome us, that in this desert waste, I am absolutely at the mercy of an oasis, hopefully in the, in the, on the horizon, somewhere, so you keep moving on. And there's no hope for you unless and until you find that city, as it were. Civilization tends to grow up around places of resources. If there's a house, if there's a car, if there's a road, if there's a person, there'll likely be water, sustenance, food, and the ability to live another day. This is a description of the desert fugitive. This is a picture of what we were saved from. We were wandering in desert places, finding no way for, to a city to dwell in, and furthermore, we were hungry and thirsty, and our soul fainted within us. Now, we can make this analogy, or we can understand the spiritual aspect of this analogy, can we not? What is it like to wander in a desert place, spiritually speaking? Well, it's to have your soul fainting within you. It's to lose hope. It's to not know where salvation lies. It's to be aware of the brokenness of yourself, your situation, perhaps your family, your relationships, perhaps a culture and a nation, and not know where that oasis of hope lies. And then through the course of your life, you realize with more and more cynicism that every savior that was promised and every solution that was sold and every book that was written and every expert that pontificated have only proved to be a mirage. And so you continue to wander hungry and thirsty. In the Old Covenant, the children of Israel wandered for a long time in the wilderness. But God satisfied their hunger and thirst as a picture of spiritual provision. He sent supernatural manna from heaven to teach them this lesson. In the wilderness of sin's wasteland, the only possible hope of survival is when God supplies the provision. In the wilderness of sin's wasteland, the only possible hope for survival is when God himself supplies the provision. And this is why Jesus says that I am the bread of life. This is why Jesus associates himself with that miraculous event of provision in the wilderness. Just as your forefathers ate manna from heaven, so I am here. And last week at the Lord's table, we had pictured before us the very elements that sustain us in the wilderness of sin. Kids, what does the uh, bread of communion table rep represent? What does it remind us of? Jesus' body. And kids, what does the Jews remind us of at the communion table? Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. Jesus says, if you partake of these, if you realize that they are your spiritual sustenance, then you will survive the wasteland of sin. And these are miraculously uh, provided by him to the hungry and thirsty and those whose souls faint within them for want of a savior. Verse 6, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Notice, this is following our pattern that we identified in the introduction. Desert fugitives, a description of our peril. Imagine Jacob's journey, you know, uh, during famine times to Egypt. Imagine that man versus wild illustration of, will I have enough insects to survive another day until I find civilization? This is a description of our peril, but then it's followed by this cry. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. How did he do so? It says, let them, or uh, he led them, verse 7, by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Straight way, you might ask. 
Isn't the closest distance between point A and point B a straight line? Um, and so as the crow flies, maybe it was a week or two journey for the Israelites when they went from Egypt into the promised land. I'm here to tell you that a straight line by man's calculations is different than a straight line by God's calculations. There was purpose and design and intent in the trials and sufferings that God ordained his people to go through. From our calculations, it seems not logical. It seems a circuitous or the long way. Isn't there a shortcut from where I am now to where God's plan is fulfilled for me? God has ordained for you individually certain trials for you to go through. But if you cry out to him and trust in him as your savior, I'm telling you, it's a straight line. You will see in the hindsight and with spiritually a granted hindsight later on that it was necessary for you to suffer for Christ's name in certain ways in order for your faith to be conditioned and that your dependency on self and other saviors to be once and for all renounced for him to become your chief source of help and hope and for you to learn through the conditioning of God's design for your sovereign life how he will shape you into his image. And he does this through sufferings, sorrows, trials, and difficulties. We can trust our Savior. When we cry out to him, he delivers us. But he does so in a straight way, that is, his way. From man's calculations, it may not seem to make sense, but you can trust that there is purpose in the wilderness wanderings. The wilderness wanderings of Israel, incidentally, become programmatic. They become a pattern to understand the gospel that I am preaching from even today. So without that experience in the wilderness, we wouldn't have the same understanding of the body and blood of Jesus Christ as spiritual sustenance in the wilderness of sin as we do now, because that was one of the purposes that God had for that straight line, as it were, that straight way, I should say, as it were, for Israel to go from Egypt to the promised land. He delivered them. Therefore, what should they do? So we have this description of peril. We have this cry, more on cry later, by the way. And we have deliverance. He led them the shortest distance uh, by way, or not the shortest distance by way of point A and point B, but according to his will, whereby he accomplishes his ends unto a city. A trajectory uh, wherein when they did enter the promised land, they actually inhabited cities that were evacuated and built by their sin, the sinful inhabitants who are now evacuated from the land. This is basically the shape of redemptive history. We too are in a wilderness right now unto a city. Revelation describes it as the new Jerusalem. It's a place of holy habitation with the Lord where the fullness of Christ's sacrifice purchases for us perfect reconciliation and a perfect reordering of things. So he is saving us, delivering us, leading us on this straight way unto a city. And so how ought we respond to this? This is the worship call in verse 8. Let them, let us, thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. If you were at the communion table last week, I trust that in this picture you realized that you are satisfied in your day of sin's distress only by the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. I trust that you reminded your soul, and if not then, do it next uh, first Sunday of the month at the Lord's table, that only in Christ are the hungry filled is the hungry soul, the soul that is broken down, the soul that is hungry and thirsty and fainting within them, only in Christ and the work that he has provided, his wondrous works among the children of men, chief among them, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord. Only in these provisions does he satisfy the longing soul and is the hungry soul filled 
with good things, sufficiently to bring him through the wilderness unto the promised land of that holy city, New Jerusalem. So when we realize that truth at the Lord's table, the next week that we gather, may we follow, may we heed the call to worship in Psalm 107. Let them, let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Final point, major point this morning. Psalm 107 calls to worship those who are one-time desert fugitives and secondly, uh, one-time enslaved prisoners. Psalm 107 calls to worship those who can identify with enslaved prisoners. Verses 10 through 16 pick up on this picture. Some sat in darkness, verse 10, and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Enslaved prisoners. This is a picture of the peril of those that comes upon those, the danger, the distress, the trouble, that comes upon those who rebel against the words of God and spurn, that means reject, mock, disdain, treat lightly, the counsel of the Most High, which is the Word of God, His directives that He gives in the Scripture. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a world, do we not, that has rebelled against the words of God and has spurned the counsel of the Most High. And hence, we are enslaved today. There are many ways in which we suffer bonds and afflictions, and I submit to you that the cries in the street today are evidence of the noose of God's judgment, the enslaving consequences of a world that rejects the counsel of the Most High and the Word of God. We are feeling the noose tighten around us individually and collectively if you are not free in Christ. The sounds of our culture today are cries. Yes, they're gasps, they're anguish, they're outbursts of pain. But we don't understand, in most cases, why we feel this way or where hope is to be found. We will yet sit in darkness and in the shadow of death with our hearts bowed down through hard labor. That is, rigorous consequences do our sin until we cry out to the Lord, the Lord, the true Redeemer in our trouble. Uh, closer to the beginning of the advent of COVID-19, right, the coronavirus, uh, you know, a sensible pandemic that we were facing, I found refuge in the Word of God by preaching from Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. My essential message, you may remember, is this, was this, continues to be this, sackcloth or slavery. Those are your options, sackcloth or slavery. Now, sackcloth in Nehemiah 9 and Jonah 3, two examples, is associated with repentance. It's a posture of humility assumed when one puts aside their own dignity represented by the clothing to make them presentable in the eyes of their neighbors and taking on sackcloth, which is to say, I'm a humble, desperate beggar. And you take on that posture of humility and you beg God to have mercy on you. That's what sackcloth represents. It's a cry out to God. And our choices are this, sackcloth or slavery. The bonds, the consequences, the effects of our sin will increasingly enslave us. You see this by the fear, the paralyzing fear of death that has grown more and more and more prevalent in our society, just to name one example. People, and there are many reasons that people wear masks and do everything else, but 
defy me if one of the main reasons isn't out of fear, fear of death. The Bible says in uh, Hebrews 3, I believe, that we, before we knew Christ, were captive all our life to the fear of death. That is an enslaving chain that controls our destiny and creates this psychological weight in the shadow of death that restricts and chokes and the breathing of the human being and causes him to be absolutely in bondage, an enslaved prisoner. How to be free? How to be free from this? The only way to be free is to put on the sackcloth, as it were, of repentance. It's sackcloth or slavery. God will not be mocked. He will not suffer another redeemer to offer hope of salvation, freedom from the fear of death, a new orientation for society, and then entering into this political season, we're going to hear those solutions and suggestions and platforms ad nauseum. But God is a jealous God. He will not allow his redeemer's status to be co-opted or competed with by a mere sinful human that is motivated by a lust for power like Satan was one day, that, you know, back in the day. He will cast him out of his presence. He will restrict them to slavery. Notice, when Satan rose up against the knowledge of God and declared himself to be on par with him, what happened? He received the chains of God's judgment, and he will receive them even more in the future. The future of the devil is chains forever because he has rebelled against the word of God, and he has spurned the counsel of the Most High. And so it is with the nation. What is the future of a nation who has rejected the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High? If they do not repent, chains forever. It's very simple, however difficult the reality is. But we see this laid out in this picture of enslaved prisoners. Now juxtapose this, if you will, with Psalm 2. Are you guys familiar with the term gaslighting? Gaslighting is this idea that you slowly turn up the light or turn down the lights, but then you tell somebody that no, and they say, don't the lights seem dimmer to you? And you say, no, I seem... Uh, it seemed the same to me and so forth. And you continue this psychologically manipulative exercise to you basically a brainwash through very small steps the, con the consciousness of an individual until they're literally insane. That's the picture of gaslighting. Well, the whole culture is gaslighting us. How are they doing so? They're doing so according to what the Bible reveals in Psalm 2. The wicked say, the rulers of that day said, let us throw off the bonds and chains of the word of God and let us embrace the liberation of doing whatever we want to do. In other words, a world in rebellion against the word of God looks at what the Bible teaches about as marriage and says that's bondage. We want to throw off the bondage of biblical marriage and we want to redefine it any way we prefer. And thus we open, and, and in so doing, we actually embrace the chains of self-destruction. One example. Let's say, according to the values and virtues of our day, as perverted as they are, a transgender individual who has been so gaslit by his own sin and a society goes to the logical progression of what his self-sexual identity leads him to do, mutilates his own body, and begins to take hormone-altering poisons until he is literally sterile. And then the weight of what he's done actually pushes him into that statistical box which is ever-growing of suicide because of the despair of self-destruction and rebellion against the created order. This is an example, just one, of the tragic fallout of spurning the Word of God, which says that we are made in His image, marriage is His design and idea, and only in Him can we rightly understand our place in the created order. But when we spurn the word of God and his counsel, when we rebel against him, it leads to sterility. It leads to death. It leads to despair. 
and leads to depression, it leads to both individual and social suicide, self-destruction. But the world causes, calls this liberation. They are wrong. They are self-deceived. And so the Bible sheds a light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And it shines that bright light of truth. And I'll tell you, people will rub their eyes and they'll scream against it. Consider this analogy. Have it, has it ever been totally dark and then someone just flips, you know, a whole array of 100-watt lights on? What's your first reaction? Ah, turn it off, right? Because your eyes are adjusting to the light. Now, when we turn on the light switch of the gospel in a world that is under the shadow of death, that is uh, in situations that are described here in darkness, that's the initial reaction you will get. They're about to run off the edge of a cliff, and the gospel turns the lights on, and a lot of times the first reaction is, ah, turn it off, turn it off. I can't take it anymore. Not knowing that this momentary pain of adjusting to the light will actually save them from walking off that cliff. That's the truth. That's the truth, church. So don't let the gaslighting influences of the world discourage you from turning the light of the gospel on. Turn the light of the gospel on. That momentary cry of pain that we sometimes are averse to, you know, bigot, racist, homophobe, whatever, they cry as the light of the gospel blinds their eyes for that brief moment. That is nothing compared to the reality of answering to God in faithfulness for worshiping him consistently and faithfully and telling the truth because our culture is careening towards a cliff of self-destruction, breaking all the speed limits in the process. Enslaved prisoners, we can relate to this. So the people cried. Verse 13, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Well, let me give you one more illustration. I remember a testimony of a, I don't know, Atlanta-based woman who had a huge prostitution ring. She ran a number of, of uh, ladies in this prostitution ring. She was eventually found out. The law caught up to her, and she went to jail. On, she, someone witnessed to her the gospel of Jesus Christ. She repented of her sins. And literally on the way to incarceration, somewhere in that trajectory, she met Jesus Christ. And when she was convicted of her crime and put away for X amount of years, she said, this is the freest day I've ever had in my life. Because when she was outside of prison, she was living under the inescapable crushing weight of sinful guilt. But when she went into prison, she knew full well that even if she died there, it was a blink like the Bible says, a vapor, just a momentary passing sigh. But eternal life is freedom forever. We can suffer our days in prison here or even suffer a premature death here knowing that eternal life is guaranteed in glory. And so when we cry out to the Lord in our trouble and He delivers us, it is freedom in the ultimate sense, not in the man's best possible hope sense, but in the eternal life sense. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart the bonds of sin and slavery on the inside. And therefore, how ought we respond to this experience? Again, the call to worship comes to redeemed. Let the redeemed say so. Verse 15 gives us some language. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his, one, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Have you experienced the doors of bronze that enslaved you to your sin being broken? Have you experienced the door or the bars of iron of your sin being shattered by the blood of Jesus? If you have, I beg you, join me, join us each Sunday here, wherever the Lord calls you to worship, to thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of men.
You know, what if someone ran up to you after you had escaped that blaze in California and said, you know, you're two days overdue on your bill, uh, on your electric bill? How would you respond to that? Who cares? My blaze is burned up anyways. You know what I mean? And so when we let the pressures and the cares of life override us, it's kind of like that. It's like, oh, I was going to praise the Lord and focus my attention on him, but I have so much stress and anxiety about what I'm going through. Who cares? This world is going to burn, you know, and the things that surround it. But that which survives the blaze is that which is connected to Jesus Christ. So be an ambassador for him and get this perspective from Psalm 107. Who do you cry to? Have you cried to the Lord in your trouble? He is the only one who can shatter the doors of bronze. He is the only one who can release you from the bars of iron. Earlier, I told you, and I'm sure you've seen the news yourself, there are people screaming, shouting in the streets, and they're holding signs. Signs like, a silence is violence. You need to join us in this cause. Signs like, you know, these lives matter, those lives matter, so on and so forth. You're familiar with these. Signs like, no justice, no peace. Signs of chants and over and over again. Raised voices. And sometimes they're emphasized with the exclamation point of violence in some cases. And so on and so forth. What you are listening to when you, listen, when you see these video clips on the news is a cry. It's a cry, quite literally so. What does a cry sound like? It sounds like a voice screaming in the street for hope for a future. That's a cry. But the point is, in Psalm 107, who are you lifting your cry to? We won't have justice until the government steps in, until the police are reformed, or whatever the short-term or temporal solution is that people are advocating for. If that's their highest appeal... If that's the focus of their cry, it will always and ever fall short. Why? Because police reform, ultimately speaking, is not your redeemer. Because the next politician to enter into Washington with his agenda and his cabinet is not ultimately your redeemer. Why? Because uh, the social, social justice causes that are seeking to right the wrongs of the past in our day by manipulating certain social conditions and the relationships in our land is not your redeemer. Those things can be affected and changed, but only as a secondary cause of crying out to the only one who can truly redeem. And unless and until we lift up our cry to the one who can truly redeem, there will be no peace in this land because God owns exclusively the rights to justice. Upon him, upon Jesus Christ, the foundation of his throne, uh, upon, or underneath the foundation of his throne are two things, righteousness and justice. And nobody else, no other redeemer owns the claim. Their throne is not built on righteousness and justice. They call it justice, but it's something else. It's a gaslit version of manipulation that would only bring more bonds and chains. That's the world in which we live. So that's a corporate application. And I've also given you in the course of this message a number of individual applications. Who do you cry to in your day of trouble? As a nation, we must cry to Jesus Christ if there's any hope for reform, any hope for a brighter tomorrow. But as a person... More, even more importantly, and as an individual lost in our transgressions and sins, we must cry to our Lord Jesus Christ in order for us to have any hope of redemption. In Him is satisfaction for the longing soul. The faint of heart are strengthened and encouraged when their souls, their hungry souls, are filled with the good things that He supplies on His cross. This is the root of the problem that we've identified in this peril, namely our sin, and this is the root of the solution, if you will, crying out to Jesus Christ. And this is the perspective and direction that Psalm 107 would turn our hearts to. We remember in Psalm 107 that the call to worship comes to those like us, if you're a believer in this room, that at one time were desert fugitives. 
on our last drop of water facing certain death, and Christ saved us. He was our oasis in the wilderness. We are those who relate that we were enslaved prisoners, namely to our sin, and secondly, to the province of hope in what the world only could provide, which just led to more and more bondage. But we have experienced freedom and resurrection in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now it's our call to let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Say so. That's correct. How do we say so? We say so in our worship and we say so in the announcement of the gospel to those who have ears to hear. Shining that light switch of the gospel brightly, even though it will be offensive at first click to those who are lost in their transgressions and sins. So if you've been discouraged in your call of late, I beg you to spend a lot of time in Psalm 107. We'll spend more time there next week. But let it seep into your souls and encourage you in a day such as ours. We're presented with incredible gospel opportunities. If you're struggling in a day of trouble as an individual, on a personal level, or whether you feel that corporate struggle on a social level, kind of the bigger picture items, both apply in the case of Psalm 107. Let us close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the proclamation of your holy word. We thank you that it's powerful and true, that it never returns void and provides for us the hope of eternal life in Christ our Lord. Father, if we have grown discouraged or weary in well-doing, I pray that in these pages we would find reassurance, that we would find the equipment and encouragement that is necessary to withstand the blaze of life's vicissitudes, life's trials. I pray that you would equip us through your word with the sword of the Spirit, that as Paul identifies, is a sufficient armament to slay every opponent of the faith, as it were, spiritually speaking, or as he further describes, to take down ideas, philosophies, and to take them into captive obedience to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the lost in the hearing of this message that they would not lift their cry to any false redeemer, but that they would lift their cry to Jesus Christ, the only one who can truly and ultimately save, and that they would find in him hope for their losses, hope for their hell-bent depravity, hope for salvation and eternal life. And for those who are facing individual difficulties and struggles, Lord, they find themselves in the day of distress and trouble in their life. I pray that you would encourage them and that they would cry out to you for salvation, that they would cry out to you, their Redeemer, in their day of trouble, and that you would answer them. And though the path seems difficult, they could nevertheless trust that it is the way that you have ordained that they grow in Christ and that they be shaped into your image along the way. And finally, Lord, in our country, as we face these dark days, the shadow of death and days of trouble, even boiling over in the streets of our land, I pray that your people would be faithful to proclaim, Lord, without apology, because it is the only hope of salvation that Jesus Christ alone is the light of the world. Teach us how to turn on the light switch of the gospel, whether it's in a private conversation with a family member, a coworker, or whether it's taking the bullhorn to the streets. Wherever you call us, Lord, may we be faithful, and may we be counted among the redeemed that even in the days that were dark, said so, said that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. In his holy name we pray, amen.